Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate hosts a Let It Roll seance and summons up the spirit of the late Jack Palmer, author of Vernon Dalhart, first star of country music. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're not joined by a living guest. Instead, we're joined by the spirit of Jack Palmer, the author of Vernon Dalhart, first star of country music. Now, this is something that's pretty near and dear to my heart. I was curious about Vernon Dalhart just because I first came across him uh, and his legendary massive hit, The Prisoner's Song and The Wreck of the Old 97. It was a two-sided single. Uh, it was the biggest pop hit of 1924, not country, but pop, the biggest record in America of 1924. I first came across it on the Smithsonian collection of classic country music in the 80s when my brother bought it for my mom on cassette, and we that thing just lived in the car, and I listened to it constantly. And Dalhart didn't jump out at me out of that collection, but I was familiar with him. I thought the Prisoner song was kind of maudlin. It didn't sound that country to me. I was definitely much more drawn to the Carter family. I definitely preferred Grayson and Witter's original version of The Wreck of the Old 97. But nonetheless, I was curious about him and, and a little bit informed. And for whatever reason, in the course of the Let It Roll project, I got curious enough to take out an interlibrary loan and get my hands on a copy of this book, uh, Vernon Dalhart, First Star of Country Music, which was published roughly about 20 years ago. And um, it was kind of the life's work as a music scholar of Jack Palmer. He was a, a fan and an amateur, not not a professional scholar, but he was motivated uh, to write this book because 
he born in 1924, went to World War II, and and became a collector of 78s. And he'd never even heard Vernon Dalhart and until because he'd only heard music on the radio, really heard country music locally growing up. And then he kept coming across Vernon Dalhart 78s and started to buy him, and kind of became obsessed. And um, at the time, Vernon Dalhart was deeply undersung. I mean, he's undersung now. But in the 70s and 80s, he was incredibly uh, neglected. No, no compilations of his work were put out on LP for a very long time. And Mr. Palmer just took it upon himself to write a book to try to rectify the record. And in his introduction, he talks about uh, his excitement on October 12th, 1981, when uh, Vernon Delhart was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame at the Country Music Association Awards. And this is decades after Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family, uh, who came after Vernon Delhart, were inducted. And uh, uh, Delhart was inducted by Dolly Parton and it was a big moment for Jack Palmer, but he went on to continue to research Vernon Delhart and write the book. I know I don't have the biggest platform or megaphone, but I do want to support his work. I was touched by it. Mr. Palmer sadly passed away long before I could talk to him. And I think he's got a point here that Vernon Delhart was not, quote unquote, as authentic country as Jimmy Rogers or the Carter family, although it depends how you define authentic, because I think, um, you know, one of the key things about the music of Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family that make them so powerful is how influenced they were by African-American music. Jimmy Rogers learned the blues firsthand in the rail yards in Mississippi and all over the South growing up. And, and as a young working man, uh, the, the Carter family, A.P. Carter famously traveled and song wrote with a, a black man named Leslie Riddle, who is believed to have been a big influence on Mabel Carter's picking technique. And Vernon Dalhart was just as Southern as Jimmy Rogers or the Carter family. He was born in Jefferson, Texas, which is deep East Texas. And, uh, you know, grew up in in the South, hearing string bands, hearing African-Americans singing, um, you know, everywhere in the community. But he was also a, a professionally trained operatic singer. He's somebody who performed in Gilbert and Sullivan reviews, who toured the country doing light opera, who had hopes of the big time of, of you know, the Metropolitan Opera and everything. So his style is much more European influenced than Jimmy Rogers of the Carter family, who, you know, obviously had plenty of Anglo and Celtic influences, but they definitely didn't have any operatic training. And I think Vernon Dalhart has been dinged for that and, and kind of punished and ignored for that to some extent. But this strain of operatic style singing was very big piece of pop music at the time, you know, people like Nelson Eddy were huge stars a decade later. Uh, John McCormick was a huge star through the teens and 20s. McCormick goes on to be a huge influence on Bing Crosby and others. But also in country music, from Eddie Arnold to Garth Brooks, this more pop-influenced strain of country has been, if not a dominant one, fighting for dominance against a more, quote-unquote, authentic or, or, or rurally influenced or even African-American influence strain of country. I mean, there's always been this tension and this battle back and forth. And so I don't think that dismissing Vernon Dalhart's contribution is is uh, the thing to do. And so let me tell you a little bit about, about the guy who was born Marion Tri Slaughter in Jefferson, Texas. And his family history is fascinating. 
and pretty ugly, frankly. His grandfather, for whom he was named, was a violent opponent of Reconstruction, was likely a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He was definitely involved in multiple violent incidents during white Texans' resistance to Reconstruction after the Civil War. Uh, he was a contemporary of John Wesley Harding, the infamous gunfighter and killer. And if you look into John Wesley Harding, most of his killings had to do with this reaction against Reconstruction. So, you know, historically, the Slaughter family was on the wrong side of history. And then and then Dalhart's father, Robert Marion Slaughter, continued those violent ways. He was a notorious knife fighter. He had been arrested and charged with, with assaults. There were, the family was relatively prosperous and, and relatively respected in the community, but uh, uh, Vernon's father, Robert Marion Slaughter, had a bad reputation and ultimately he ends up getting murdered by his own brother-in-law, Bob Castleberry. And I don't believe charges were filed Mr. Palmer certainly documented it all in the book, and and, and my fault if I didn't if I didn't note that. Mr. Palmer, you know, speculates that it's quite likely that Vernon's father, Robert, was being abusive to his mother because she stayed on good terms with her brother Bob, who had killed her husband. Uh, probably when when her husband pulled a knife on him, Castleberry shot shot Slaughter. So that tends to tell you that. Or one can assume that it was a violent, abusive relationship, and it resulted in in uh, Dalhart and his mother leaving Jefferson for Dallas, where he became a trained singer. But let's go ahead and hear a little bit of Vernon Dalhart. This is the record that first brought him to attention, or the record that started the whole thing. His his practice of recording country music. This is the Wreck of the Old Ninety Seven by Vernon Dalhart from nineteen twenty four of Victor Records. That was The Wreck of the Old 97 by Vernon Dalhart from 1924 on Victor Records. Big hit, uh, but the B-side, the Prisoner song, became an even bigger hit, like I said. But we've got a little bit more ground to cover before we get to the story of The Wreck of the Old 97 and how Vernon came to record it. First, I want to talk a little bit more about his operatic training. He uh, sang and played harmonica and juice harp as a kid. I'm not sure if juice harp is the appropriate term anymore. Apologies if I've offended anyone. I just don't know what else to call it. Mouth harp, I guess. Um, uh, of course, that's confusing with harmonica. But he And he attended the Dallas Conservatory of Music. He uh, did small parts in Madame Butterfly and HMS Pinafore, which are both Gilbert and Sullivan operettas in Dallas, and then uh, moved to New York and continued uh, his career where he got more parts. Uh, I, I'm sorry, that those parts in 1913 were in New York. And, and he, you know, Mr. Palmer was able to find plenty of newspaper advertisements and records of Vernon Dalhart as a semi, or, you know, moderately successful operatic singer in New York in the teens. Around this time, he also answered an ad for uh, singers that uh, Thomas Edison had put out. And he recorded for Edison Records from 1916 to 1923. He recorded for a variety of record companies, but he also worked for years uh, for the Edison Company, 
doing a thing where they Edison's whole argument was that his equipment reproduced the human voice more accurately than competing products. Edison was still recording on cylinders and putting out releasing record or you know records on on cylinders rather than discs long into the teens after his rivals RCA or not it wasn't RCA yet but Victor uh, and other record companies were putting out discs and so Edison was sort of making this claim of quality and he would send people like Vernon Dalhart out to sing from behind a curtain while you know and then they would have the record or the disc played the cylinder, sorry, the cylinder played behind a curtain. And then the crowd would be asked, you know, which one was the human being and which one was the record. And so this was a very lucrative uh, career for, for Dal Hart for several years. And he took up the name Vernon Dal Hart as an operatic singer. The two towns are both in the, in the West Texas. Dal Hart is the very top of the Texas panhandle. It's, it's notable to me because it's one of the few towns that Jack Kerouac has anything negative to say about in on the road. And from my experience in Dal Hart, uh, I can confirm that I've had some negative experiences in Dalhart. And then Vernon is a town that's not quite in the Texas panhandle, but it's between Wichita Falls and the panhandle and is uh, most famous in northwest Texas because it's the home of a massive mental institution, the Pavilion. But that was before Vernon's time. Anyway, so he, he picked the name Vernon Dalhart for the operatic stage, not for a country con- to be a country performer. And then after his tenure with Edison Records, he spent from 1916 to 1923 recording for multiple record companies. He, he recorded between three and 400 records of light classical music, early dance band vocals for multiple labels. At this point in time, uh, singing for recording companies was kind of a day job where you, you punched in, you made your records, you got paid for the session. There was no expectation of royalties. There was no expectation of exclusivity. You'd probably record under different names for different record labels, but but it wasn't like you know uh, modern days or the twentieth later twentieth century when a record company would invest heavily in an artist and expect to have an exclusive relationship and promote the artist as a brand. The brand was the song, and the artists were fungible, and they were just singers singing records. Um, and the and the point of the record was to get that song out there. But in the early twenties. Country music starts to be recorded, first recorded by Eck Robertson, who uh, coincidentally is buried in my hometown, Borger, Texas. But his record didn't come out, or at least not initially. And it wasn't until Ralph Peer released, recorded and released Fiddle and John Carson out of Atlanta that there was a significant selling record that we would call country music today. And then that didn't exactly open the floodgates, but between the success of Fiddle and John Carson and the much bigger success of Mamie Smith and Crazy Blues and the discovery that African Americans would buy records and white people would buy records made by African Americans. Then they just, you know, then they go all in on all kinds of ethnic groups. And uh, Southern whites are one of the ethnic groups that they recorded. And they discovered pretty quickly that other white people all around the country would buy country records. And so a guy named uh, uh, Henry Witter in a partnership called Grayson Witter, and, and apologies, I'm forgetting Grayson's name right now. They recorded Wreck of the Old 97, and it made some waves. It wasn't an enormous hit. Uh, Henry Witter wasn't the best singer. Uh, his partner Grayson was much more talented than him, um, but Witter's just one of these guys I, I kind of admire because he was just an enthusiast who got in there and made records, even if he wasn't the most technically polished, and they're pretty darn fun to listen to. 
But the success of that led a guy named Nat Shrokat at at, uh, Victor Records. He wanted to put out a country record. And Vernon Dalhart lobbied internally to be the guy to record it. He he was a Southerner. He um, felt he was familiar and comfortable with that kind of music. He had a, a guy he worked with named Carson Robinson, who was a singer-songwriter that had written uh, some songs that Dalhart recorded, although they were more in the minstrelsy tradition or the blackface tradition or and apologies for using the terminology, but what was called coon songs uh, at the time. And and they were, you know, going for that market. And then this this opportunity falls in their lap and they record a version of Wreck of the Old 97. And Dalhart was pretty smug that he was a better singer than than Henry Witter, which is demonstrably true. I mean, maybe if you're judging on country authenticity, Witter has a chance, but the dude's not a technically trained singer at all and not a strong vocalist, you know, definitely an amateur and not a gifted one. Whereas Vernon Dalhart was a very talented trained singer, somebody who had had to train himself to sing more quietly uh, with the early Edison equipment, which you don't hear that very often that, about singers in the old days being told to, to, to turn it down a little bit for the, rec- the acoustic recording session. But let's go ahead and hear the B side of that record. And this was the Prisoner song recorded by Vernon Dalhart and officially credited to his cousin, Guy Massey. And I'll tell the story about that in a second. Prisoner song, uh, the the other side to the wreck of the old 97 by Vernon Dalhart from 1924, written by Guy Massey or credited to Guy Massey at least. And you know they knew they wanted to put out the wreck of the old 97. They needed a B side to put on the record, and they you know there were plenty of times that they would put recordings by different artists on the same record. There were multiple occasions when Dalhart, uh, the B side to a Dalhart record, was an Al Jolson record, or maybe it was the A side that Jolson had. Jolson was a much bigger star especially before the the Prisoner song Wreck of the Old 97 hit so big for Dalhart. But be that as may, they need another song. Dalhart has got a cousin visit him, Guy Massey. And Guy had picked up this tune and the song that became the Prisoner song, He the story is that he learned it from his brother who learned it in prison. So when you hear that song, imagine somebody singing that in prison and how memorable that would be. Anyway, the two of them shape it into a song, bring it into the studio. Carson Robinson plays on it, uh, had a little trio with Vernon Dalhart, and they record it and they release it, and it becomes an absolute phenomenon. This is, you know, if you if you buy any of those compilations or you don't need to buy them anymore, if you stream one of those compilations, like the biggest hit records of the 1920s, if they go year by year, multiple of those compilations will select the prisoner song as the biggest song of 1924 so so an enormous enormous national hit i've read it um mentioned in multiple bits of of 1920s literature i know john dos passos mentioned it i'm pretty sure f scott fitzgerald mentioned it 
Um, you know, it, it was it was a big, big piece of pop culture, and it definitely incredibly raised the profile of country music in the United States. This was the first million selling country record. And that is an enormous, enormous accomplishment, even though, you know, three years later, Ralph Peer discovers Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family in, in Bristol, Virginia. And that is often seen as the foundation of modern country music. It's definitely the foundation of, or the beginnings of the country music industry, which Vernon Delhart was never part of. But I don't think you could say it was the first, you know, it was the beginnings of country music or commercial country music, because, you know, not only did you have Vernon Delhart, we had Fiddle and John Carson and Grayson Witter and others who were recording uh, successful enough records that they were sending Ralph Peer out to Bristol, Virginia with, uh, you know, 900 pounds of recording equipment uh, to, to, to round up uh, the yokels and see and see what music they had. So, so you know, Vernon deserves massive credit for that. And, and then in the 20s and 30s, he goes on and records literally thousands of singles. Uh, he's using or no, hundreds of singles. Sorry, not thousands. But he's using still with the pseudonyms. You know, he's he's known by Al Craver, Vernon Dale, Frank Evans, Hugh Latimer, Sid Turner, George White, Bob White. But after his hit with the Prisoner song, he's much more frequently recording as Vernon Dalhart and and as the Vernon Dalhart trio with uh, Adeline Hood and Carson Robinson there. And Robinson's an interesting figure. He was a singer, songwriter, multi instrumentalist. Um, he was a Southerner as well, moved to New York City in 1924 and immediately hooks up with Dalhart and then had success. He backed Dalhart on guitar, harmonica, whistling, harmony vocals, wrote a lot of the songs uh, that Dalhart sang. He definitely played on Wreck of the Old 97 and the Prisoner song. After the Prisoner song, they have a pretty successful run of songs like the Alabama flood, the Mississippi flood that they viewed the wreck of the old 97 as a topical song or what we would later call, you know, a folk song in the forties, fifties or sixties. In the hands of someone like Pete Seeger, he would, he would definitely call that a folk song because it was based on a true event. And um, there were endless lawsuits about who wrote the wreck of the old 97 because the uh, Victor records version didn't credit Grayson and Witter and, and uh, Mr. Palmer gets into the whole details of of who exactly wrote the song. It's well documented. It was, I believe, published in a newspaper um, in verse form long before uh, uh, Grayson and Witter got their hands on it. And and you know the suit was all for naught. I can't even remember at the moment who won the suit. But um, the important part is it wasn't Vernon Dalhart. However, the prisoner song. Vernon Dalhart was collecting most of the royalties for, even though he had credited his cousin with the copyright. Uh, they cut a deal whereby, you know, I think three quarters of the other royalties went to Dalhart and only a quarter went to Massey. And Massey died fairly young just a couple years later. And then um, at one point, Nathaniel Shrilka, the head of recording for Victor, uh, tried to get his nose into the pie and claimed that he had written a piece of it, too. I'm extremely skeptical of that, as is uh, Jack Palmer in the book. But regardless, um, Dalhart and Robinson go on on a run, touring together and recording together, you know, singing songs, The Wreck of the Shenandoah, The Alabama Flood, The Wreck of the Number Nine, uh, the John T. Scopes trial about the infamous Scopes monkey trial, uh, I believe in Tennessee or Kentucky. I can't believe I don't know that. And 
they have have this great run until Dalhart makes a personnel change without consulting Robinson, and and uh, the, they break up the partnership, and that's really kind of the end of the line uh, for their success as a team and for Vernon Dalhart's success as a as a country performer. And let's take a sponsor break, and, and when we come back, I'll I'll talk a little bit about what happened to Vernon Dalhart after the glory days. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And so we've talked about Vernon Dalhart and his 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 successful parts of his career and then after he loses his partner uh, Carson Robson uh, his his fortunes slowly but surely took a turn for the worse basically they eroded um his records became less and less successful his live appearances were less and less in demand and by 1948 he was retired and had been retired for 10 years and and passed away it's a little bit frustrating uh, and and mr palmer admitted it because by the time palmer was writing this book he researched it throughout the 80s 90s and and published it in the early 2000s and i guess after he retired from his his day job and by that point, almost everybody who personally knew Dalhart had passed away. And so we really don't know much. We know, you know, he was married, he owned a home, he had some kids, the the, the kid who was pretty prosperous even before uh, the Prisoner song and the Rock of the Old 97 came out. Uh, most of the money he made from that was, was from the copyright of the song. Like I said, he was getting... Uh, 
double dipping there. And then um, definitely was not a celebrity in any way, shape, or form. He never had the kind of massive stardom that Jimmy Rogers enjoyed briefly until Rogers' death in 1933. And he never even had the kind of, of fame that the Carter family did. I mean, remember the Carter family, hundreds of thousands of records in in the late 20s. Their recording career suffered like everybody else's during the depression. And they moved to Mexico and recorded on the, you know, five five 500,000 watt Mexican border station XDRA and reached millions of people all across North America and Mexico into Canada. So that, you know, Jim Rogers and the Carter family enjoyed a level of fame that Vernon Dalhart uh, never really approached. I mean, he had, he had a massive hit record, but the prisoner song was more famous as a song than a celebrity vehicle for Vernon Dalhart. He didn't ever really establish a persona. He was just a singer who sang these sort of country flavored songs and also uh, some, some older type songs. And I want to play a couple of his other songs. I want to put on, this is a song called putting on the style that I picked because I personally enjoy it. And also because as a skiffle song, this is a song that John Lennon sang with the Quarrymen before Paul McCartney, Paul McCartney joined the band. So listen to this. This is Vernon Dalhart's song, Putting on the Style. And imagine a 15-year-old John Lennon singing this. Young man in a carriage, driving like he's mad, with a pair of horses borrowed from his dad. Cracks his whip so lively to make his lady smile, but oh, she knows he's only putting on the style. Sweet 16, she goes to church just to see the boys. Turns her head and giggles at every little noise. First this way a little, then that way a while. The boys all know she's only putting on the style. Putting on the agony, putting on the style. And that was Vernon Dalhart singing Putting on the Style, a song that was later sung by John Lennon and the Quarrymen when they were a skiffle group. So a song with 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 uh, some legs to it and and typical of, of his creation and not his creations, but of, of, of the kind of songs that he documented and sang. You know, Vernon Dalhart was many things, but he was not a songwriter. And and. It's interesting to compare to, say, Al Jolson or even Eddie Cantor records of that same period, and you would definitely put Dalhart more in the category of a pop singer rather than um, any kind of ragtime singer or vaudeville singer, which is what you would classify Jolson or Cantor or something like the great African-American vaudeville artist, uh, Burt Williams. Uh, But the thing is... All three of those guys, including the black man Burt Williams, recorded or performed in blackface because, like I said, minstrelsy had been the biggest pop style of the 19th century and directly leads to the creation of vaudeville and Broadway. So you just can't get that out of American history as much as we'd like to pretend it didn't happen. But I think that burying that history uh, in part is an attempt to bury our shameful history of slavery and apartheid and racial oppression. So I would err on the side of telling the truth and, and, and telling the historical record. And the reason I'm getting into that is because a lot of the records that Vernon Dalhart recorded before the Prisoner Song were in what we would consider that minstrelsy tradition, including the next record I'm going to play, which this is one that Dalhart considered his personal best ever record. He recorded this in 1918 for Edison. It's called Can't Yo Hear Me Callin' Caroline. And you can tell by the dialect that this was minstrelsy. So here's Vernon Dalhart. 
Hussein Minstrelsy. In the morning when old Bob White gives his call, Caroline, Caroline, I meet you at the sunset when the evening shadows fall, Caroline, Caroline, I meet you when the moon beams out on the river, And that was Can't You Hear Me Calling Caroline um, by Vernon Dalhart, a record he considered his personal best. And I tried to pick one that wasn't, that didn't have anything offensive in the lyrics. If you are offended, I, apologies. There's uh, other songs such as Razors in the Air that Vernon Dalhart recorded that are much more offensive. <laughs> so, um, you know, but the thing to keep in mind about minstrelsy, especially by the 1920s, is that it wasn't seen as particularly racist. It was just something Americans did, was put on blackface and pretend to be black and sing these ridiculous dialect songs, including many African-Americans, some of whom wrote these songs. In fact, some of the most offensive coon songs were written by black people. And I'm thinking in particular the infamous um, all Coons Look Alike to Me, which was originally, originally written as All Pimps Look Alike to Me, but of course that was far too offensive to be published in the 1890s, whereas an explicitly racist song was just fine and sold literally millions of copies of sheet music. Now, the guy who wrote that song uh, was condemned by the African-American community, but um, you know, at the time it was controversial and people knew that, that that was not a cool thing to be um, putting out there. But I'm just trying to say that in the context of these things, and Ernest Hogan was the name of the songwriter, and he was a gifted songwriter, although in that instance he swiped a song that he learned in a Minneapolis whorehouse called All Pimps Look Alike to Me, and he knew he couldn't he couldn't sell a song called All Pimps Look Alike to Me, so he changed it out with a racial slur, and uh, America was just fine with that. And the 1890s, of course, is the period when Reconstruction is violently ended. I mean, there, there's literally the only coup in U.S. history happened in, I think, Wilmington, North Carolina around this time, a massive slaughter, and starts this period of pogroms and lynchings and mass murder that probably culminated in the, in the destruction of, of Tulsa in 19, or the black section of Tulsa in 1921 which was considered, you know, the, the black Wall Street at the time or the Negro Wall Street at the time one of the wealthiest uh, sections of the country owned by black people. And so I'm just trying to put this in historical context. I'm not trying to excuse anybody for anything. I'm just saying that Vernon Dalhart or even Al Jolson or Eddie Cannon were, were far from the villains of the story. They were just performers who were performing the dominant traditional pop music form. And, and there are scholars like Alan Lowe, who's a great jazz historian, who he argues that, that jazz is a direct descendant of minstrelsy as well, which he might be right. But my beef with, with Mr. Lowe is that his histories of American music, and he's, he's one of the best catalogers of pre-1930 recordings. If you ever have a chance to track down Alan Lowe's books, which he all independently publishes, I highly recommend them, especially if you can get the playlist put together, the CDs, or or download the playlist. But, but he always systematically excludes operatic singers. And I think that leaves out so much of the picture because, you know, it's well documented that people like Louis Armstrong and Muddy Waters 
we're huge fans of that kind of stuff. It was just part of the mix. And musicians are very open-eared and and listen to to you know whatever is out there, whatever they can get their get in their ears. And so it's I think you know been kind of an obsession of mine. I'm trying to learn this history and put it all together. And starting with you know studying under Ed Ward the late great Ed Ward and then, you know, reading people like Gary Giddens and Alan Lowe and, and, and Nelson George and so many others, George early, you know, learning so much from so many writers and and getting to interview so many uh, writers and that when I realize that they've got a blind spot or they've left a piece out of the history, then I want to learn more about that piece. And that kind of led me to this operatic, this fascination with operatic singers, because it's just not something you hear much about. And so let's hear one more um, Vernon Delhart song before we wrap. And apologies for the short episode, but again, there's not a lot to say about this guy because there's not a lot known about him. But let's hear kind of the more operatic side of Vernon Delhart. And this is a song called Dardanella. And that was Vernon Dalhart singing Dardanella, which gives you a clue of the kind of stuff that he would prefer to have been singing. This is this is um, I'm sure he would love to have taken a crack at Verdi and and Wagner and all the great op- operas. But uh, Gilbert and Sullivan was probably as close as he got in a major uh, on a regular steady paycheck way, at least of, of getting to sing. So he never quite sang legitimate opera, but he sang popular light opera. And that's another thing to keep in mind is that in the teens in particular, opera was pop music. It was not some highfalutin fancy thing removed from the people. Verdi's operas were selling, you know, massive tickets anywhere they were performed. Puccini, others were selling. Um, Caruso was the biggest recording star. Something like 25% of records sold in the teens were, were opera. So this is a big part of the American pop music story. And it's one that's been kind of erased by people who are doing the Lord's work and trying to elevate vernacular music and the music of African-Americans. But in the process, they, they kind of cut out part of the story. And so I'm at least personally trying to see this in as holistic a way as possible. So I, I'd like to kind of reinsert operatic singing. And it's something you can't get rid of. It pops back up in rock and roll with Freddie Mercury and, and, and you know, Rob Halford of Judas Priest and so many other performers. That This is still a big piece of the puzzle, big piece of African-American music. I mean, Screaming Jay Hawkins, of all people, was a trained opera singer. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the, this, this strain and these techniques continue to be adapted uh, and adopted and used by people throughout the history of American pop music. So Vernon Dalhart, to some, was a big piece of the history of country music, and, and he has been undersung, overlooked in favor of a narrative that kind of starts country music with the the big boom at or the big bang at Bristol with Ralph Peer going to Bristol, Virginia and discovering Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family when there were already plenty of country 
records, plenty of people making country music on record and commercially successful. Fiddle and John Carson for one, Grayson and Witter for another, and Vernon Dalhart for a third, and the most successful. This guy and his record, The Prisoner's Song, backed with the record of the old 97, one of the biggest records of 1924. And keep in mind, more records were sold in the early 20s than at any point until uh, the mid-1950s or early 1950s. The record industry really falls off the table and basically dies. Radio erodes its power throughout the 1920s. There's less and less records sold every year of the 1920s, culminating in falling off a cliff uh, between 1929 and, and 1932. I mean, literally... It goes from millions of records sold to tens of thousands of records sold per year by everybody. And it's only being Crosby and Decca Records who kind of save, keep records alive as an industry. And it's really only when jukeboxes come in in the 30s and 40s that records once again become a successful, vibrant, growing medium. And then when they're adopted by uh, uh, young people in the late 40s and 1950s, then they go on to have this this great run until the uh, invention of the cassette or the popular marketing of the cassette in the 80s and then the CD in the 90s that finally kills uh, the, the, the disc recording. Anyway, that's been my episode on uh, my seance with Jack Palmer. So wherever you are, Jack, uh, thanks for writing this book. And the book is called Vernon Dalhart, the first star of country music. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, Nate will hold another seance and summon up the spirit of the infamous John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas to discuss his autobiography, Papa John. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.